Romans chapter 12. Sunday morning, studying the book of Romans together, and uh, currently in chapter 12. If you're with us this morning without a Bible, just wave to one of the men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll put one in your hand so you can hear the Word of God this morning and see it with your own eyes, double the impact. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Single verse this morning uh, in verse 12. Uh, but you might have no noticed last week we didn't do serving the Lord in verse 11. And uh, I'm kind of going to skip that one because I think we really covered that as we spoke earlier in, in verses 3 through 8 about uh, the attitude of uh, Christians toward the local church. And we went into depth about Christian service there, so we won't uh, repeat all of that. We'll make our main focus today uh, and sole focus on uh, chapter 12, verse 12. Paul writes to us, that's you and I, including you and I, uh, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that there is not a wasted uh, word or sentence or phrase in your word. It is absolutely uh, perfect. And what we might or the world might consider to be unnecessary or even incorrect is always the world wrong in that way. And we just acknowledge the importance of these three uh, exhortations and encouragements of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, not just for the whole world and not just for other Christians, but for us individually in our personal relationship with you today. And we pray that you would give us a supernatural ability to hear your word today by your Spirit and then to receive these truths, Lord, not only into our minds, but into our hearts and into our relationship with you and with the body of Christ. And we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> in uh, verses 9 through 16 here of Romans chapter 12, we have Paul describing uh, to us as Christians what presenting our lives as a living sacrifice to God in response to all that he has done for us, as is detailed in chapters 1 through 11, in uh, providing us with everlasting life, providing us with uh, sanctifying us, saving us, giving us the confidence of heaven at the end of, uh, of this life. And so what is uh, the response, the appropriate response to that? And that is to uh, give our lives to God and present them as a living sacrifice. And here in these uh, verses 9 through 16, he's telling us very specifically about what this living sacrifice will look like in our lives, specifically in our relationship with one another as Christians and in our uh, influence and in our impact as individual Christians upon other Christians and upon the body of Christ as, as a whole. And the, uh, next in this series of encouragements and exhortations, again in verse 12, he tells us that we are to be rejoicing in hope. And this encouragement tells us two things at once. First of all, that our lives as Christians are to be characterized by joy. And then second, that our joy 
is to be anchored in something. And the thing that is to be anchored in is this thing called hope. And so let's take them in their order. Our lives are to be, as he tells us, to be characterized by joy. The word joy there, as it's in the original language, it means to rejoice or to be glad. It carries the idea of us living our Christian lives in this kind of a a state of gladness, a state of this sense of well-being, the sense that uh, we are blessed and that we are uh, well cared for. And, uh, and significantly, it's important to notice that uh, it tells us uh, there that uh, rejoicing, and that word rejoicing is in the present tense. In other words, it tells us that uh, this rejoicing in our lives as Christians is to be something that is a constant in our lives. It is con- to constantly mark our lives uh, as Christians. Well, that tells us it, it, it isn't merely an exhortation to uh, have our lives be characterized by joy. It is that, but it doesn't merely uh, stop there. Because if our lives are to be characterized continually by joy, then Paul is telling us that the source of our joy has to be greater than all of the trials and all of the circumstances in life that would rob us of our uh, joy, all of those things that we face in life. And so the source of our joy has to lie beyond the reach of everything that we will face in life. I remember being in Indiana years ago at a pastor's conference, and uh, there was the uh, uh, the gentleman that was leading worship, and he sang a song and of course, and the song was talking about the blessings of God. And since the world uh, didn't give it, the world can't take it away. There are blessings that are ours in life that lie beyond anything that the world can do to try and rob us of those things. And joy is one of those things. And, uh, and so the source of our joy has to lie beyond the reach of life, and it does because our joy, as Paul tells us, is anchored in hope. The biblical meaning of, of hope is, is a little different from how it's used in our culture. For the most part, the way that we use the word hope in our culture is we use it with a sense of uncertainty. And so we'll talk about Uh, We hope to, when we go to the store, we hope that we won't find it crowded or that we're going to begin our commute to work or ride across town. We we declare that we hope that the roads aren't backed up on our, our way there or we hope that our flight is going to be on time and so forth. And we use it in the culture in a way that we aren't really certain of any of those things, that they'll be true. We just hope them to be so, or we wish them to be so. But when the Bible uses the word hope, and as it's used here, and as Paul uses it here, it doesn't have any element at all of uncertainty. It literally means to anticipate with confidence, and, and beyond that, to do so uh, with pleasure. It is to know absolutely that something is going to happen. But the only reason we call it hope is because it hasn't happened as yet in our life. It is very much like faith. It is the confident expectation of coming good. We don't doubt that it's coming. It isn't called hope because we doubt it. 
Uh, it is a, sure, a, a surety within our life, and, but we, we can't call it something that has happened within our life because it hasn't happened just yet. And so that's the meaning of hope. And the single great hope that Paul is referring to here is the one that he has referenced twice before in, in this letter to the Romans. And it is the hope, the complete confidence that one day each of us as Christians are going to be in that heavenly scene, that each and every one of us there is a glory on the other side of this life in heaven, and that we're not only going to be present there, but we're going to participate in that glory uh, of, of heaven. And that's a wonderful confidence to uh, have in life. I live my Christian life, I don't wonder not for a moment, not for a second, where I'll spend eternity. My only thoughts are, uh, what is it going to be like? I mean, we have a, 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 some kind, a bit of a, a description of it in the Scriptures, but not a lot has told us about heaven. And I think it's exactly as the great old preacher Vance Havner had it, is that God doesn't tell us as much about heaven as we might like to know, because it's, the, it's like the boy that's sitting at a, at a table with spinach in, in front of him. You don't want to put a chocolate cake at the end of the table, uh, make the spinach far too hard to bear. So he tells us what we need to know. But there's never a doubt about whether we're going to end up in that scene. It's a confidence. It's a, an absolute confidence and the confidence that, that we're going to be in, in that place. Jesus himself uh, promised it. John 14, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you, speaking of heaven. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, as I mentioned, Paul mentions this very thing, this hope, uh, as the confidence of heaven twice before in, in the letter. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through whom we also have access by faith into this grace uh, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 23, he's referenced the same thing. And not only that, he wrote, but we also who have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope which is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In other words, Paul is saying that this inexhaustible cause for joy in our lives is found in possessing uh, this hope, found in possessing an eternal perspective in life. It is the realization that this life is not all there is for us as Christians, that this life is as wonderful as it may be on many levels. It is merely, as C.S. Lewis referred to it, it is the shadowlands. And to realize that the life that we live now is merely a shadow of a greater existence, 
uh, a world uh, that this world is, is not all that there is, but there's something far uh, more than what we experience here, a greater world, an eternal world, an existence, a heaven. I think someone has uh, observed of how this truth can kind of get uh, turned on its head in the course of life. Uh, to lose sight of this, even for Christians to lose sight of this. He wrote, there is some irony in this since most people today, uh, if they believe in an afterlife, seem to assume that this world is the real world, full of fun and excitement, whereas heaven seems to be some sort of pale, shadowy, poor substitute for our current reality. And Paul is declaring to us here that that is not to be the attitude, that is not to be uh, our thinking as Christians, living as if this world is the real world, uh, full of all of the excitement and the fun that we'll ever know, but that heaven is some sort of uh, pale, shadowy, poor substitute for it. When the truth of the matter is, is that heaven is the real world, full of blessings and full of excitement that we can't even begin to imagine. And that it is this world, as wonderful as it may be in many, many ways, that is the shadowy, uh, poor substitute for heaven. And maybe some of us have this very thing upside down and backwards in our life. And Paul writes this to get it turned right side up. Peter wrote in this vein, Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter. He said, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And nevertheless we, speaking to us as Christians, according to His promise, Jesus' promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The Apostle John wrote in the Revelation, chapter 1, uh, 21, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, chapter 1, to uh, Timothy, and he said, For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, and that day being the glory of heaven. Jesus himself, on the night before his crucifixion, prayed to the Father, and he said, Father, I desire that they whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. Uh, Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 25, and when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them uh, one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, 
Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And as we give some consideration to this, there can be a tendency for us to think about heaven and think about uh, realizing as a Christian that this is not all there is, that, the, that heaven is the reality, the ultimate reality. And to speak about this in the prosperity and the relative safety of the United States, uh, sometimes it's possible for uh, one or two of us to listen to the verses and to look at the truth that Paul is bringing forth here, and it can seem a little bit tedious. But it is very, very good to remember as Christians in the United States of America that the Bible wasn't merely written to Christians in the United States of America. It is written to Christians all around this world who are not blessed with the kind of favor and prosperity, so to speak, materially, or the relative protection that we enjoy in this nation. And these verses are the things that get people, get Christians through one day to the next. They cling to them. They have no present life, no present something in the world that makes them uh, go to bed with peace at the end of the day or to wake up with hope in their hearts, not to be found in, in the physical of this life, but it's found in this very hope that Paul is talking about. Maybe you uh, read this week the article that came out and opened doors that ministry to uh, serves the persecuted church around the world, and they came out with their latest report that uh, reported that the number of Christians who live today all around this world uh, in a high level of persecution, they live with a constant threat of violence and active oppression against them. Uh, the, uh, uh, the last year, the, uh, the previous year, the number was 215 million Christians uh, that identify with Christ in the same way that we do, that live every single day in that context. And this last year, the number jumped by 50 million in one year. That's the condition of the world that we live in. And now, uh, or 30 million, it's jumped, and now it's 245 million people wake up every day. And this uh, exhortation and encouragement of the Apostle Paul here as he declares that, uh, that the rejoicing and hope, it is the thing that gets them through one day to the other, that this is not all there is, but the greatest is yet before us as Christians. I remember years ago, uh, Karen and I were new Christians and we'd gone to Southern California for a trip to Disneyland with our children and her parents. And uh, we decided that while we were down there, one of the kind of mountaintop experiences of the trip would be to go to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and hear uh, Pastor Chuck Smith teach. And so we got all together early in the morning and headed over to Calvary Chapel, uh, Costa Mesa, and, uh, and, and, and then it was announced that Pastor Chuck wasn't going to be there that day, and my heart absolutely sunk. And a gentleman by the name of Guy Duffield was introduced to speak. He had been one of Chuck's teachers in, in uh, Bible college, and uh, if I was disappointed, it was only for a moment. 
And Guy Duffield took that pulpit and he actually, by the Spirit of God, electrified the room. I remember the sermon now, uh, almost uh, to this day, almost 40 years uh, later. Well, when Guy Duffield later went to be with the Lord at the age of almost 89, he requested that he would be buried with a Bible in his right hand and a fork in his left hand. And the reason for the Bible, of course, we can completely understand. But what's up with the fork? Well, Guy Duffield was famous for telling the story of the woman whose health was failing. Uh, and in her final days, she gave her pastor instruction that she wanted to be buried with a Bible in her right hand and a fork in, in her left hand. And, of course, the Bible testifying to how much the Word of God had meant to her in her life. Well, the pastor questioned her about the fork, and she said, well, the church has meant so much to me, and I've been to so many wonderful potlucks, and when the dinner is over, they come to pick up the plates, and they would always say, keep your forks, because the best is yet to come, speaking of the dessert. And Guy Duffield, kind of wanting everyone attending his coronation service to know his attitude toward life and toward death, that life had been good to him as directed by the Word of God, but he lived his life with the recognition uh, of the fact that the best is yet to come, and, uh, and the best was the heaven that he had graduated into. And that is exactly the attitude that the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, here. The consciousness front and center within our hearts and minds that one day all of this is going to give way to a life of unending eternal glory. Paul goes on in verse 12, and he implores us uh, further that we're to be patient in tribulation. And that word tribulation is an interesting word. It's used frequently uh, in the Bible, uh, quite a word, actually. It's the word in the Greek, philipsis, and it speaks of extreme pressure. It was a word that was used in the ancient world to uh, descri describe the kind of pressure uh, that uh, e extracted the juice out of grapes uh, or uh, the great uh, spiked logs that were run over the grains, rolled over the grains in order to separate uh, the, the chaff uh, from, from the wheat. It was a word that was used to describe uh, the torture by death that was uh, meted out in the ancient world in order to solicit uh, confessions of wrongdoing from prisoners where a great wooden plank would be put across the chest of, of the prisoner and a great weight would then be put upon that plank. The weight would be so great that as they would exhale, they didn't have enough strength to or pressure to then inhale, and they would be slowly crushed by the weight of that stone and that plank upon uh, their chest. That was Thalipsis, and it speaks of the kind of trial in life. Paul takes it and he uses the word to speak to us as Christians. I don't know if I want to know what he's talking about when we realize the meaning of the world, uh, word, and then he applies it to me, and he applies it to us, but apply it, he does. And he, it speaks of the kind of trial uh, in life that crushes you. It's the kind of trial that isn't something, well, you know, that really pushed me almost to my limit. It's the kind of trial that gets introduced into our life 
and we legitimately wonder, even as a Christian, whether we will survive this, uh, this trial, this crushing pressure, this crushing circumstance that has become, uh, come into my life. And just in case uh, any of us sits here this morning and thinks that this kind of tribulation, this kind of uh, pressure and trial doesn't have anything uh, to, to do with us or never will because we're king's kids or whatever these kind of cliches that we use as Christians today, uh, realize that this tribulation does have something to do with every single one of us. And this idea that we can sit sometimes in the safety of our minds and our hearts and to think, well, you know, that's the portion of some uh, poor Christians in uh, Yugoslavia or in China or in North Vietnam or in India or in Russia, but that's never going to be something that'll be a part uh, of my life. It's, it, it, Paul's talking about some, you know, small segment of Christians. Not, it's not uh, the, the portion of every single Christian. And yet we have from the very highest authority, Jesus himself speaking to us as his disciples, John 16, he said, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, thalipsis, he uses the very word, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so how then, given the fact that this becomes uh, ultimately our portion of every single one of us, whether in life or death as it approaches, how are we to respond to this tribulation? How are we to navigate it? And Paul tells us that we're to navigate these kind of seasons in our life with patience. The word patience is an interesting one in the original language. It is the word hupomone. I don't know uh, uh, whether uh, that's the exact pronunciation of it, but it sounds a little more Italian to me than Greek, doesn't it? Hupomone. It's, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like I would uh, need a gelato or something uh, in saying it. But the word hupomone, it means to be, uh, to remain under. It carries the idea of persevering. In other words, Paul is saying, however great the, the thalipsis or the tribulation may be in our lives, and many of you uh, of us are in this very place here this morning, and, uh, but no matter how uh, great the, the thalipsis within our lives, we're never to qu quit our faith, never to compromise our faith in order to escape the tribulation. That is absolutely off the table for a Christian for consideration. And instead, he tells us that we're to uh, remain st uh, spiritually steadfast. We're to persevere in it. Now, allow me a couple of thoughts here that I think are helpful in terms of being keys to patience or uh, hupomone in our, our lives during seasons of, of uh, tribulation. First, I think, and this is absolutely vital, is to make sure that our expectations of the Christian life in this regard are biblical. In other words, to realize for all of the prosperity teaching and all of the health and wealth and all of the sermons that tell us everything is going to be easy in our life or God will rescue us from every trial before they ever reach this kind of a philipsis place in our life. It's all nonsense. And if I believe that, 
rather than believing what the Bible describes concerning the Christian life, then when these seasons come, uh, uh, the temptation will be to be uh, undone by by the tribulation. And I think it's so important to make sure that our expectations concerning the Christian life are biblical. In other words, realizing that just because I'm a Christian, it does not make me immune to great trial, to crushing trials, to the kind of trials that I can honestly before God wonder whether I am going to survive uh, them. And if I bring any other expectation to my Christian life, uh, then I'm going to be uh, stumbled at the very least uh, when these trials uh, come into my life. And they come. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when they come. And I don't know where we get this idea, but I suffer from the same thing myself. Where we get this idea in, into our thinking that if I just live a good Christian life, I serve the Lord, I obey the, uh, the Lord, that I'm faithful to Him, that I'll never suffer tribulation, or I'll never suffer tribulation like that. Sure, I'll have my problems like other people have in, in uh, life, but that somehow, by virtue of being a Christian, we will never experience trials that literally crush us, that literally cause us to wonder whether we will uh, see life on the other side of them. But we do. These trials come into our lives as Christians. And when they do come into our uh, lives, they can do more than just surprise us. They can really, really shake our faith and uh, cast doubts in our mind about uh, the goodness of God and in some extreme cases cause people to even doubt uh, the existence of God. Let me to read a, a, a couple of verses to you uh, this morning that speak to this very thing, to help us realize that if that is the expectation that I bring into my Christian life, that I'm going to be spared tribulation, then to realize that I never got that from the Bible, That's something that I came up with or somebody introduced into my uh, life. But to realize God has been very upfront with us as Christians in in this regard. Again, John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus speaking, These things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. And when they, that is Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. Why would they do that except that people were being uh, weakened in this? And saying to them, Uh, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 4. For in fact, we told you before, when we were with you, that uh, that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. 
Paul writes to Timothy, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, what happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord uh, delivered me. And yes, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall, shall suffer persecution. Jesus declared even uh, the kind of tribulation that can happen within a family. In Mark chapter 13, Now brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he endures to the end, shall be saved. Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, as he talks about the Old Testament saints, is an example of what will uh, be our portion as well. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others, though, were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may, uh, might obtain a better resurrection. Still others uh, had trials of mocking and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were uh, tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Peter wrote in his first epistle, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Jesus in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you do not, uh, are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And I know how hard it can be to listen to one verse after another, but I read them knowing uh, that it's easy to drift away in the course of them, but not for everyone. And to allow these verses as they come one on top of another to just uh, blast to smithereens any other expectation within our heart that somehow this is a foreign thing to God's people or a foreign thing to a Christian or some strange thing has been introduced into my life when these kind of trials and tribulations that uh, occur within our lives. So we don't bring these false expectations to our Christian life that will uh, only fail us and fail us at the, at the worst hour uh, in which to do so. I think a second key to patience in our lives during seasons of tribulation is to uh, realize the invaluable things that God produces out of these seasons. And that as hard as it can be to believe in the midst of a season like that, all we're doing is trying to survive it one day at a time, one hour at a time. We can't see the big picture. So often we can't even see what God is doing in the situation, around the situation, inside of our own lives, uh, in the situation. 
but to realize that as hard as it can be to believe in that kind of season in our lives, that God really will work it together for good uh, in, in producing godly character in our lives and conforming us into the image of Christ as a result. And of course, we've already seen this as we've studied in, in Romans. Chapter 5, verse 3 again. And not only that, but we uh, also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Romans 8:28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are call, called according to His purpose. And also, as James writes in the same vein, James chapter 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, that is spiritually mature, uh, lacking nothing. And I have been through tribulations, and I know that you can say the same thing about the tribulations in your life. But I've had tribulations in my life as a Christian that not only did I not think I would survive them, but I didn't want to survive them. But after days and after weeks and after months and sometimes even years pass, and then what happens in our lives, the smoke begins to clear uh, just a little bit, and we realize that a lot more was going on in our lives than just a trial, but that God was using it to develop a godly character and a Christ-likeness in our lives that we come to realize probably could not have been produced any other way except through thalipsis, except through that kind of crushing uh, trial and difficulty. And ultimately what happens over time uh, is that we can look back upon that season and thank God that by the grace, the grace, the grace, the grace of God and the power of His Holy Spirit that He allowed us to remain patient in the midst of that, that tribulation so that these things could be learned. And I say it myself, I don't say it for you, but I know it's true of you that we can look back and, and, uh, and I say of myself, it just, I, I hate to think of the person I would be today if it were not for the spiritual growth that tribulation has forced upon me. I would have never chosen it, but it has brought a character that would not otherwise be there. And I want you to notice that Paul speaks about this again in the context of our relationship with other Christians, that somehow it's important for us to persevere in these tribulations, not for just for our own sake, but for the sake of our fellow Christians that we're uh, in con uh, contact uh, with. And what, what is the reason for that? There are a lot of reasons for it, but one of the reasons is, is that people watch us when we're in tribulation, when we're in thalipsis, like no other time uh, in our lives. They watch our lives to see how are we going to respond? What are we going to do? What do we say? And some people watch us critically, hoping that we'll fail. I mean, there are people that hate us, hate the Lord and all, but most people are looking for hope related to their own lives, wanting to learn something. 
as they would, would see such a season uh, in our lives. And when they see uh, your perseverance and they see you continue to walk uh, with God, when they see that God's strength really is made perfect in weakness, and they see you uh, come to church and lift holy hands to the Lord all the way through the entire uh, thalipsis that you're in the middle of, and it's a tremendous encouragement to our faith, and it communicates to the rest of us that when we find ourselves one day uh, in such a place that the capacity for perseverance in the midst of that kind of trial will uh, be a part of our lives as well. And it's such a strong witness to, uh, to, uh, to God. People can be mortified by the trials that are allowed into your life. And then yet when God rises greater still in the middle of that trial and they see as horrified as they are by the trial to see that there's a God that is greater than that trial and to see God work not only for us to survive it but to work it together for good within, within our lives. It's such a powerful witness. And there are many Christians who are wonderful Christians just as long as everything is going wonderfully in their lives. But the moment a trial of this kind comes into their lives, uh, they collapse. And that quality of Christianity, that quality of Christian, that's of no help to either the Christian that uh, does that or those who are watching. And I think it's good to be reminded of in tribulation the spiritual effect that it's having on the faith of others because often we'll endure for the sake of other people what we would never choose to endure just for ourselves. And these tribulations allow us to take what we've learned in them and then for the rest of our lives, those great things that happen between us and God and what we learn and then to speak into other people's lives words of faith and confidence and encouragement and to pray such prayers for people that we run into that uh, ultimately find themselves in the same depth of trial and to realize that I'm so glad that I went through what I went through because if I didn't, I don't know that I would have anything to say to someone in a trial like this, not to say it with any kind of authority or voice of authority within my life. And these trials add that kind of voice and experience to our lives. And Paul spoke of it from his own life. And he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we have received, we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effective for enduring the same sufferings uh, which we also suffer. For, or, if, uh, or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake 
of the consolation. And Paul ex exhorts us here that we're never to quit in the midst of tribulation, in, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are to persevere in them and that no one who does so will ever regret uh, having done so. Another uh, key to maintaining perseverance in the midst of suffering is prayer, which he makes his final exhortation in this kind of uh, triplet that's here. And he declares to us that we are to be continuing steadfastly in prayer. And what is prayer? It is merely to talk with God. It is to talk to God and then listen. It is Him to talk uh, to us. It is to take everything, anything and everything uh, to Him in conversation and talk it over with Him. One of my favorite verses in terms of prayer just in, is an image within our life. It, it comes from Psalm 62, verse 8, and the psalmist writes, Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart uh, before Him. God is a refuge for us. And that, word, that phrase, pour out your heart, it literally means to spill. And my twin brother and I, we were known spillers growing up in the kind of an awkward age of uh, elementary school and junior high. We'd reach across the table for something at dinner time and knock over a glass. It was a constant portion. But when you spill something, everything within the glass pours out. And that's what God tells us to, to do in coming to Him, to pour the entirety of our hearts out to Him. Never is it more important than in times of tribulation. Tell him anything and, and everything. And that prayer is a, a, a vital uh, key to perseverance in tribulation uh, is declared to us by none other than Jesus in his parable uh, of the persistent widow in uh, Luke chapter uh, 18, uh, verses 1 through 8. And we're told that Jesus then spoke a parable to them and the idea behind the parable was that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. There are trials in which if we do not pray, we will lose complete heart in them. And Jesus talks in that parable about uh, a woman without any kind of power, a widow. She comes to a judge who cares nothing about uh, her at all, uh, no concern at all. But she comes repeatedly to the judge, and finally the judge gives her the request that she's asking for just to get her off of his back, so to speak. And what Jesus is saying is not, he's not saying that when we go to God that God doesn't care, and, and if you harp on him long enough, he'll give you what you want. Uh, that's not the attitude of the one we pray to. But the idea is, is if a widow can get that kind of response from the judge who is it powerful and cares nothing about her, how much more will, uh, effective will our prayers be as we approach a heavenly Father who is eager to hear our prayers and to answer those prayers? Jesus spoke a parable to them that men ought, always ought to pray and not lose heart. The alternative to losing heart is prayer, that, that confidence. And how is prayer a key to remaining patient in tribulation? First of all, in that it reminds us that we're not alone. And, and prayer, for however feeble they might be in our prayers in seasons like this, might be to just sit in, in dead silence before Him, 
but he reads the prayers that are in our heart that we can't even put into words at that moment. But it is the recognition I'm going to sit before God, I'm going to pray to God, and it is at the very least the recognition that I'm not in this alone, that God is here with me. And the second thing that prayer does is it changes us. There is, as we spoke a little bit about it last Sunday night, introducing our evening of prayer. There's a famous saying concerning prayer that prayer changes things, and that is very, very true. And there's a second famous saying about prayer, and it it involves kind of an addendum to the first, and that is that prayer changes things, and the first thing that it changes is you. And that is always the case, always uh, the case. And we see this illustrated continually in the Psalms. And we have experienced in our own life, long before our prayers are ever answered, something happens out of the conversation between us and God. No one goes to God in prayer and then gets up from a place of prayer before God and is the same uh, for having uh, talked a situation over uh, with Him. But we see it continually in the Psalms, where the psalmist begins his psalm, he begins his prayer, he begins his praise to God, and he's typically completely overwhelmed with some great trial within his life. And they're not small trials. David is running for his life. People are wanting to kill him. This isn't an ingrown toenail. Uh, These are deep difficulties that, that, that they're facing. And, and so they begin their, their uh, cry to God, and they're overwhelmed by some difficulty. And uh, the psalmist begins to describe the circumstances in detail uh, to uh, God and uh, that he's in the middle of, overwhelmed by the circumstances. But the longer he cries out to God in prayer, there's this gradual change that takes place in him until finally he closes uh, inevitably. I think there's only two exceptions to it. The psalmist closes the psalm then uh, filled with faith and crying out praise and victory and and worship uh, to the Lord. And he, he begins with a problem in his life that's so big that initially as he begins his prayer to God, he sees God in the light of the circumstances. God is small and the circumstance is big. And then as he prays and he continues to pray, everything flips and he ends up seeing things finally clearly. He begins now to see his problem in the light of the greatness of God. And that is always a consequence of prayer. And I would be negligent if if I didn't add that it is important that we continue to pray to God until that flip occurs within our lives. I think all of us know what it is to go to God in prayer and to be more dominated by the circumstance than we are by God at the moment. And and, uh, we see Him as a small thing uh, compared to the greatness of the trial that we find ourselves in. And and as with the psalmist, we see uh, the psalms are of varying length, aren't they? And the psalmist maintains engagement to the Lord in prayer until this flip occurs within his life. 
and the importance of us to pray to the Lord in times like this until that flip occurs within our lives that we're no longer seeing God as small in the light of the circumstance, but we're now seeing things as they truly are, the circumstance in the light of God. And one of the things that we fight against is we live in this culture of the United States of America, which is wonderful in many ways, but it is very, very efficient. And it wants to reduce everything to a formula. That's what it wants to do. Absolute efficiency in every area. And it gets carried over into our Christian life as well. And so questions come up like this in, in seasons of difficulty or related to prayer. How long do I pray uh, to God each day? Do I begin the day with five minutes of prayer or 10 minutes of prayer, 30 minutes of prayer, or a, a, an hour of prayer? We want a formula to work off of. But the real answer related to prayer, uh, it, it, while in the midst of tribulation, uh, is that we need to pray until that flip occurs, until I no longer see God uh, in, is small in the light of my, the, the greatness of my circumstance, but now I see my circumstance in the light of God. And if that happens in five minutes or it happens in 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever the length of time is, whatever time, the flip will occur, but whatever time is required for that to happen, to stay engaged with the Lord, and until that peace of God retakes control of my life, the peace of knowing that my problem is under his control, as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then here it is, in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus and to sit and to pray and to praise and to lift these things up to the Lord until that happens. And it will always happen. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we pray that you would use these encouragement and exhortations that we've looked at here this morning to produce perseverance, Lord, and steadfastness and encouragement and every single person that finds themselves in the midst of tribulation. And Lord, we pray that you would plant these truths deep in our heart and in our spirit for the tribulations that yet await us in this life, that we might maintain perspective, Lord, in the midst of them as we lose perspective so easy. We commend this passage, Romans chapter 12, verse 12, to the continued work of your Holy Spirit in our lives as we leave this place today. Thank you for this time together in your word, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you